I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Today we're talking with Bob Voigt from the Gemmer Muzzleloading Club in the great state of Missouri here. We're talking to Bob about his history in muzzleloading, how he got started, what he enjoys about it. Then we're getting into uh, some more of the technicalities of Bob's involvement with his muzzleloading club, how he promotes it, and how that led into promoting and being involved with the Hawken Classic event. And then with some of the cultural difficulties that the Hawken Classic event is facing and how Bob is working to overcome it. Bob, I want to thank you so much for coming onto the program this evening to talk with me. And I want to just jump right into how you got started in muzzleloading and living history. Oh, thank you, Ethan. Um, I started off basically back in uh, 2016. Um, I met an individual who was a Gamer Muzzleloading Club member. Um, he was about, I want to say, 89, 90 years old. Wow. Um, I met him at a, at a knife show. And him and I became friends. I bought a knife from him and I joined a knife club. Then he, he basically introduced me to muzzleloading and invited me to go to a, uh, a muzzleloading match. Uh, it was actually shot out at a uh, tavern um, in Illinois. And it was a, a neat place and we had a good time. So I went over there and did that. Um, joined the club shortly after that. Spent a couple of years kind of hit hit or miss on attending events. Um, I was uh, still working a little bit in the beginning there, but then around in, in 2017, halfway through that year, I uh, retired from my uh, career that I had and I had a lot more time. So I spent, um, spent a lot of that time focusing in on muzzle loading and all the various things related to that stuff, like um, going to different events. I went to friendship, uh, in, in Friendship, Indiana at the NMLRA, took some classes. Um, I took a bow making class and with Navio yeah, and um, a powder horn class with uh, Henry Bowman. Um, Jeff Luke taught a leather class. So I've been there, done a lot of those things and enjoyed the leather class a lot. And so I started, took a couple more classes with um, Eric Van Alstine yeah. and been making some of his uh, his style pouches and uh really enjoying that I kind of wish i had more a little bit more time right now it seems like when you're retired you still don't have as enough time to do things you enjoy but i do try to focus on it <laughs> yeah. so you you met this man at a and that was a gamer club member and you just kind of hit it off you went to your first event and you were is it fair to say that you were hooked after that first event? Did you go and, and shoot and participate, or were you just a spectator then? Well, yeah. So when he invited me to go, he brought um, an extra gun, an extra muzzle loader, all the supplies and everything. Um, you know, his his son was there. His son was, um, I believe, about 65 at the time and also a, a member of the Gamer Club. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, he was old enough to be my grandfather, um, but we we just hit it off, and uh, he helped me shoot. Uh, it was kind of an interesting place because we shot out the back door of the tavern. You wow. know, everybody loaded their guns inside the tavern um, at the bar area, and then carried their gun up to the back door of the building. It's in the middle. It's in the winter time, uh-huh. and then you open the door, cap it, and shoot. And uh, it was it was a lot of fun, but it was very interesting. I never shot guns that way before. Oh, really? <laughs> that sounds cool, <laughs> though. Your the bar is kind of your loading bench in that in that event. Yep, it sure was. That's cool. That's really cool. 
are you still active in the gamer club or are you more focused on, on your leather work when you do have time? Uh, I'm definitely, um, active in the gamer club. I, I do, um, a lot of work with, with the club itself. And, um, I haven't spent nearly as much time as I thought I would with leather work, but I, I just recently went back. I took a, my, my second class, kind of a refresher class. Cause I had probably a six or seven month break there where I didn't really do anything with mm-hmm. leather. So I wanted to get a refresher and I just did that a couple months or last month, um, built my second pouch with him. Yeah. And, I saw the pictures. It looked great. Well, thanks. But I do, I do spend a lot of time shooting, you know, I, I probably go out to the range. I wish I could say I went out every week and shot, but I probably go out, um, twice a month maybe. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and shoot at the range. It's hard to get over that twice a month hump. I find. <laughs> yeah. I figure if I'm out shooting twice a month, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> yeah. We have a group of guys that um, go to breakfast uh, in our club uh, on Wednesdays. And so if the weather was working out, we'll, we'll bring our guns and stuff along and then we'll head out to the range after breakfast and, and shoot on Wednesdays. And so that's kind of it's nice to go out there with a group of other people. So what's what's muzzleloading like in Missouri? I know it's, you know, in kind of the, the Midwest where I'm at, it's it can be very club focused. But in other parts of the country, it's more individual focused with just kind of groups of friends getting together in an informal manner. What's it like in Missouri? From my experience, I would say it's probably more club focused. There's um, about I, I looked and there's eight clubs listed as NMLRA charter member clubs mm-hmm. in Missouri. There's nine clubs that are part of the uh, Missouri Offhand Association uh, group, uh, which we just, our club recently joined that. And it's really for just shooting offhand, black powder. Um, and so people kind of travel around in that group and mm-hmm. shoot at other clubs and then compete against each other. Um, the, there are quite a few people, I believe, you know, we have, a, uh, like for instance, a hunting season, uh, deer season for black powder that I used to participate in more, uh, but I I was using the inlines um, before, I, you know, 2016 when I discovered traditional black powder. Okay. So I, I did have a, a, some past with it, but I really didn't know anything about uh, what traditional muzzle loading was like and the, uh, the different experience that comes along with that. Yeah. Can we, can we talk about that for, for just a little bit here? Because I get a lot of, of questions and comments about the inline to traditional pipeline. Uh, and, and some folks out there would say that people like you don't exist, that, that started with an inline and, and now enjoy traditional muzzle loading. So, um, you know, just as a quick question, what was that jump like for you? Was it intimidating to go from the, from the inline to the traditional side of things? Well, I would say, so whenever I shot inline, and it was mainly for hunting, mm-hmm. um, I um, I kind of didn't really care that much for black powder shooting, mainly because it was like dirty. I had to clean my gun. I, you know, if you, lo- you load it up to go hunting and then you have to like, you have to shoot it. So you're going to have to clean it or you have to blow it out, which I didn't even know I could do before I joined the club. Uh-huh. I would always just shoot it and then I had to clean my gun. Um, even if I didn't see an, a deer each time I went hunting, that was kind of my thought at the time. So I, I really wasn't that um, keen on the on the whole black powder. Um, plus, inline muzzle loading, it's it's kind of like you know you just you put the sabot in the gun and load the black powder. Not a lot of it's it's very similar to uh, modern 
firearms. Mm-hmm. That's um, very simple. Very simple. You're not weighing the sabots and trying to, you're not, you're not going to, I mean, some people could make them, I guess, but I, most people who are into that inline muzzle loading aren't into the details and the finesse that goes along with traditional black powder shooting. Mm-hmm. But whenever I, I joined and I, and the people who I was, that brought me into the Gimmer Club, they had been in the club for uh, 30 plus years and they had you know the people that shot there the average time that is 15 years is the average time that a member is in that club oh wonderful lots of experience and lots of people there and and they were very helpful with teaching me stuff um you kind of you can get a little overwhelmed because there's so many very various things to learn yeah about about traditional black powder and you know everything from the the patch material and the lubrication that you use and the you know trying to determine what's the best load for a given gun i mean that's a very complex um topic and you know i only had the one gun at the time i, I bought one i had a uh, hawken uh, hawken rifle uh thompson center that i had had bought from someone used it for like one season maybe maybe even a second season and then I, I ended up uh, moving moving over to a custom rifle um, with a Green Mountain barrel, and you know I wanted to be able to compete, and I felt like it was my gun that was the problem. Hmm. But I, I found out after I had the new gun, it wasn't the gun. <laughs> I still had a, I still had a lot to learn. Right, we all do. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. I, I appreciate you sharing a little bit about that. I'm I myself see a lot of that uh, of folks. You know, kind of in a way, almost getting bored with the inlines and, and wanting to try something a little bit more difficult. Um, so I, I'm happy to hear that you made that transition and, and have been, been enjoying it and, and have gotten active. So I appreciate that. I appreciate you sharing that. Sure. Yeah, I definitely enjoy it. It seems like, you know, in the beginning, when you're first starting off with that, this hobby, you know, the biggest thing is cleaning my gun. It's such a mess and all this stuff. But then after you been doing it for a while it's like that's the least of the worries and it's actually becomes part of the ritual part of the fun of of doing it you know mm-hmm. so it's it's really not a big deal absolutely yeah so we, we've mentioned the the gamer muzzleloading club a little bit that you're, you're very active in could you tell us a little bit about the club its history and, and what you do within it sure uh the gamer muzzleloading club is a um it became an nmlra charter club back in 1950 um, they registered with the state of Missouri as a, a not-for-profit organization basically in, in 1955. So it has, you know, 73 years of, of at least that long uh, of actually being a, an organized club. And there are, there's at least one member, I think maybe two that have been members for over 50 years. Wow, um, and a whole bunch of people that have been members for thirty, a lot of thirty-year year, year memberships, and and a few other forties. So oh, there's just lovely. a lot of longevity within the club. Mm-hmm. And the club um, has moved. I think it's been at three different locations um, during all during all those years. And I'm the secretary right now of the club, and so I have like all of the history, and I'm the club historian. So I have all the club's photo albums and historical documents, uh, and I've been able to like look through them. And a lot of times I'll take that information, I'll find some interesting pictures in the past, and I'll 
scan them, post them on Facebook to share with our club members and other people in this in this hobby that that follow us. Uh, it's really cool for people to see pictures from the you know 1975 or 1980 when they were shooting um, and seeing how different everybody looks. Right, it's kind of a trip down memory lane for everybody. Yep. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. How many how many members do you guys have right now? Uh, we have uh, seventy one members. Um, about I think nine of those members, I believe, are um, inactive members. Maybe they're, they're what we call them. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on the on the term. But basically, oh, okay. they're, yeah. they're members that have moved away. Or uh, like an honorary, an honorary member. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, or, or they maybe about, can't make it to the events, but they they still want to be involved. Yeah, they they want they they can be involved. Some of them, it's because maybe of age and health, they're unable to be active. Yeah, and others and others, it's because they've been they were active for many years, and then they moved away and they live in another state, but they stay they stay part of our club. That's awesome. I, I I think it's great that you accommodate the the people that can get out there and enjoy it, and then as well as the people that that maybe can't make it. Um, so, what what kind of activities or or what kind of events does the Gamer Club do? I know I see a lot of of uh, photos and things from your matches, but for the listeners out there, what kind of stuff does your club do? Well, uh, so our club is is primarily a target, a paper target uh, shooting club. Um, there's a, another club in St. Louis, the Trappers of Stark Rock, and they primarily shoot steel targets and uh, they dress for each of their events in period type clothing. Hmm. Our club is is really more about just target target practice, target shooting, and competitive shooting. Uh, most of the people, I would say, m- the majority shoot percussion, but maybe 30% shoot flintlocks. Uh, compared to like some, maybe if you're a rendezvous type club, you would, you would have the majority of people shooting flintlocks. So, um, that's kind of the, the makeup of the people in our club, yeah. what they do. We have, we have matches 10 months of the year, um, from March through December. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. Each, each match is on the first Sunday of most months, except when there's holidays that conflict and the matches, one match is a rendezvous and then the rest of the matches are usually um, offhand um, some bench um, tar- uh, bench matches and then we have like a five position match we we shoot it pretty much all almost everything is the NMLRA target different targets that they have mm-hmm. um, ranging anywhere from 25 mainly out to 100 yards for most of our matches I, occasionally we'll throw in a 200 yard target but um, those are usually more, I think, in the rendezvous and a, and a few specialty matches, like as a bonus bonus points or something. Okay, yeah. Generally speaking, yeah, we're staying under at 100 yards or, or less. It starts to get hard to see, uh, especially with iron sights out, <laughs> about to 200. <laughs> yes, it cer- certainly does. And then we recently, like in the last couple of years, we've added um, meat matches, um, two or three, I think two meat matches, um, one chunk gun match, and then this year we had about three or four silhouette matches. Oh, cool. Now, those matches are all added in on top of the 10 matches that we normally have through the year. Okay. So, yeah, those those are kind of like more open to the public, and we invite other clubs and stuff to come join us for them. How how have those matches, those additional matches, been received? Are, are they well attended, or is, is there still a, is some growth opportunity there? Um, there's definitely, uh, I, I think we always have, have feel like we have growth opportunity. 
um, our range supports about 30 shooters at a time hmm. that, you know, on a given event. Mm-hmm. So when we have, um, normally we might have 30 to 35 people shooting. Um, we typically have two rounds of shooting with our normal monthly matches, but those specialty events, usually there there's less people. So we probably okay. have, you know, 15 or 20 people that might shoot at them. So we have plenty of room and we, we have some room for growth there for certain. That's awesome. I love to hear that. And I, and I hope that maybe if there's a listener out there in the area, maybe they can check out one of the Gamer Club matches for sure. Definitely. Yeah, that would be great. Kind of going along the, the lines here of talking about the Gamer Club, it's really one of the most promoted muzzleloading clubs that I see online. And there there might be another one out there that's the most promoted, but, but uh, right now for me, the Gamer Club is the most promoted club. Um, and, and you are the, the man behind a lot of that. What is that like for you? Is it at times, does it feel like a second job or another job for you? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I would say that my, my family always, you know, they, they, they kind of think, that I kind of have a side job uh, on my phone doing social media stuff and uh-huh. sitting at my laptop. Yeah, yeah. I would say they think I have a part-time job doing that for certain. <laughs> but it is a volunteer position for you. Yes, yeah, it certainly is. And I I enjoy doing it. I enjoy promoting the, the club. And it in the beginning, it was more more work, but I, I, I'm able to, like, you know, relax a little bit more with it now, now that things are rolling and, you know, I – I try to um, become friends with everybody, uh, you know, Facebook friends uh, with everybody on uh, that are in the muzzleloading community. Mm-hmm. And, and I, so I build up a pretty large group of, of people who uh, are into muzzleloading or into history, history reenactments and um, get, you know, get them to see our club. And that's kind of what, how the, the avenue that I've taken to, um, uh, promote our club along those lines you know if you go to say one of your your monthly events at the gamer club um, what are you what are you doing at that event to maybe capture some some photos or are you taking photos are you taking videos what what are you doing at a club event um, to then later use on social media i i do take um a lot of still shot photos, probably mainly that um, for, for uh, people shooting. Um, I, I will do a lot of slow-mo video of people shooting, and then I will slow it down and take individual screenshots showing the cool black powder and flames, you know, blowing out the front of the gun uh-huh. type stuff. Yeah. A lot of people maybe who, you know, don't know that that's what it looks like when you, when you go, when you see it go slow. Yeah. And so it's pretty cool to see some of that. And I I do post um, you know things about our events um, you know the people and the you know sometimes it's a little bit before and after as we're setting up and getting ready for the shoot pictures of the targets people who might want to come out and shoot they usually ask what what target are you shooting and how far is it and stuff like that mm-hmm. so I try to um, let people know what we're doing from that standpoint the videos I, I have taken a lot of our photos and I'll like put them together into a video where uh make a movie like you know in and uh, on my phone yeah with still shots as well as a little bit of video and then I will post that to like YouTube under our Gamer Club YouTube channel to kind of show people uh, more about what's going on yeah that's awesome i mean it sounds like you're you're approaching this with a 
you know, trying to be well-rounded in, in what you're capturing and, and give people a, a great look at your club to, to answer their questions and then kind of entice them to come out and get involved. Yeah, I hope so. And I think it, it seems to be working pretty well. I think we have um, a lot of new people in our club. Um, it's funny, but, you know, people, people who have been in the club for many, many years um, it will comment how when they're at the range now, a lot of times there's just so many people that they don't know their names yet. Oh, um, that's wonderful. There's a lot of new, new people there. Yeah, that's great. I love to hear that. that. That's the proof is in the pudding and that's the pudding right there. That's great. Well, one of the, one of the things that I've done and I, I do this because I'm, I'm terrible with names of like the new, the new guys that, you know, when you have a lot of, a lot of new people showing up to shoot, I'm terrible with their names. So I take um, pictures of everybody at the club while they're shooting or whether they're just there and I crop their pictures and I put them on our website with their name ah. and I put it in, into a members only section. So like all of the members of our club are listed there with a photo and their name so that anybody in our club can go to it and look at all the people and recognize them. I, ho I hope it basically makes it easier for members to go up to people and talk to them. And, you know, if you know their name. Yeah. Yeah, it can be, you know, you can have, there's a lot of hesitation or it can be embarrassing if you, if you can't remember somebody's name. I know I forget names all the time. <laughs> That's great. I really like that. I'm, I'm going to take a note of that one. Yeah. And we, we, our club has always um, purchased name badges with our, our Gimmer logo on them. And, and we give a name badge to each new member as they join. Oh, wonderful. So one of, one of the things I do as a secretary is I order them a new badge. You know, I send people, the new members, I send them a welcome letter um, with all the information about the club. And that's, you know, it's kind of part of the, the secretary aspects of, of the gamer club that, um, that I do. Okay. So did the, the, the social media stuff, was that started when you came into the position as the secretary or did you take that initiative? Well, when I first started, we did have a website um, the, one of the club members before me um, set up a, a gamer website and part of my job whenever I was working, um, I, I did work with websites and uh, I was technical I was into computers and, mm -hmm. and a lot of technology stuff. I, I kind of handled our businesses, Facebook page and social media platforms and stuff. So I understood a lot, a lot of that and um, I, I initiated us starting a Facebook page, starting Instagram and YouTube and a handful of others. There's, there was a lot of new ones that had popped up in recent years and I've, I've dabbled in them and I've, I do have places out there, but it's, it takes so much time. If you try to, you know, handle eight different platforms of putting your information out there, it's really hard. Yeah. So yeah, I, I kind of focus primarily on um, our website which is, I would say the website is the most important place. Yeah. And then sec secondary, I go to Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. And then, you know, I, you never know if, if those platforms are going to continue to host information about muzzleloading. Yeah. So I, I, I make sure that our website is the primary place. You know, all of the information has to be on the website first. I like that. And I think that's a, a smart way and a, a smart thing for clubs out there to consider is, you know, a website is generally a, a place that you pay for, but they are historically the most accepting um, and the most, I guess, non-limiting when it comes to, to what you're publishing in, in relation to muzzleloading 
and that side of things. So I really love to hear that you're, you're focusing on the website, you know, and I think there's probably a lot of like search engine optimization there and, and providing in-depth information for prospective members or new members there. Uh, that's definitely something that, that other clubs out there should really consider uh, if they're in the position that they can afford a, a website. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Um, one thing I would throw out about our website is what I did with it was I, I, um, I used Google ads to raise revenue. Mm-hmm. So as people go to our website and they click on th- different things, there are ads on it. And then the only reason I, I really don't like having ads on it, I wish I didn't have them, but I, I chose to go ahead and do it so that it would pay for the website. Yeah. It makes it to where it covers all the costs of having the website. And that's, that's hard to argue with, you know, if it's not costing anything, but a little bit of time, you know, from the club members, that's, that's a pretty good deal. This podcast is brought to you by Muzzleloader Magazine, the publication for traditional black powder shooters. Since 1974, Muzzleloader has been the leading magazine devoted to traditional black powder hunting and shooting. Each issue is jam-packed with articles on hunting, shooting, gunsmithing, do-it-yourself projects, living history, American history, book and product reviews, and much, much more. Muzzleloader Magazine is the best traditional muzzleloading magazine, bar none. I'd like to thank Jason at Muzzleloader Magazine for his continued support of I Love Muzzleloading and the I Love Muzzleloading podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Thor Bullets. I've talked about Thor Bullets for over a year now, and uh, and I'd like to thank them again for their sponsorship. I have since, in this amount of time, went out and tested these bullets on my range. I have not gone hunting with them, but in my penetration testing and my accuracy testing with my CVA Acura LRV2, I have to say that the Thor Hammer bullets size to my bore for that Acura do a phenomenal job. There's a lot of muzzleloader bullets out there, but uh, really can't thank Thor enough for their support of I Love Muzzleloading. This kind of leads into our, our next question here, but you know, talking about social media, it can be hit or miss for muzzleloading and the firearms community in general, just because, you know, even though in the United States here, muzzleloaders are considered, you know, by a federal definition to be antiques and aren't classified necessarily in the same way as modern firearms, social media still lumps us in and, and can give us the same restrictions as they do modern firearms have you have have you had any issues with this you know it either personally or with the club of of your posts getting taken down or or maybe you know shadow banned from from people being able to see them in general i would say with our our post about our club i haven't had issues there yet um with with social media um for instance i on on our social media stuff and even on our website um the person before me he he put uh he set up our website to be uh gamer muzzleloading club.com mm. and he left the word gun out of it um specifically to, because he you know wanted to make sure that it's not flagged or something right with so many people looking for that term um but um on, on facebook it, has, it hasn't been an issue yet there um we have I have groups that I have created in Facebook. Um, I have a a variety of different groups. Um, One of the groups, like I think I mentioned earlier, that we have private groups for our club members. Um, I also have public groups for people who just want to talk about muzzleloading stuff that is, you know, in our, that's 
underneath the Gimmer Muzzleloading name. Yeah. And then I have some groups that are like, it's called uh, Muzzleloading Items. And I started that group a couple of years ago with the intent that, you know, there's so many people, especially I know people in our club are always, you know, they might have a lot of extra round balls. Maybe they have a, a it could be patchy material, it could be pouches, it could be any of the the, the gear that we use in muzzleloading, and they want to sell it. Mm-hmm. Well, um, when you go and you, if you you're on Facebook, for instance, you can sell a lot of that stuff without any problem, but they don't want to see sales of knives, guns, or anything that they classify as a weapon. Yeah. So we don't allow anybody to post items like that that are for sale you can't so what i did with the group is i basically said that hey the group is for posting pictures of your muzzle loading items that you want to just show off and you cannot say the stuff is for sale you cannot talk about that kind of stuff because we can't promote it or the group will be shut down right yeah, uh, facebook, yeah facebook will close it down um if you do that yeah so um that requires you have to ma- monitor the group and and before any post gets posted you have to approve it which can get time consuming yeah um you know if you have 5000 people in a group and 30 or 40 posts are going in there a day um yeah it can get time consuming to try to approve each one uh, in order for it to go in there. So sometimes people get a little frustrated that maybe their post takes a little too long to get posted, but um, we have to do it just because, you know, there's rules about it. And we got, you know, if we want to keep a website, a Facebook group going like that, then we have to follow those rules. Right. That's kind of those, those platform specific restrictions that we see, uh, you know, regardless of where you're at, you know, apart from generally your own website or the muzzleloading forums that are out there, uh, those social media platforms, that's a big no, no <laughs> to, to try to, to trade anything in related to, uh, to a muzzleloading arm. And I always enjoy the, the clever names, people come up with, um, you know, for like knives and horns and things, um, because somehow powder horn has become flagged as a term, you know, along the line somewhere, somewhere. So now, uh, if, if a horner wants to sell their work out of, made out of horn, they just simply call it a horn container. Uh, you know, <laughs> and it's, yeah, it, it's kind of silly, you know, because there's, the restrictions themselves, you know, possibly on a moral level, really are are silly. But then, you know, when you consider muzzle loading, <laughs> it's very silly. But that's just kind of you got to play by their rules to to reach their audience. And you know, I think, um, you know, not to put words in your mouth here, but it seems like you see value in being on these platforms in the capacity that you can be to reach new members, and it is bringing new members to your club. Definitely, def- definitely. I mean, I, I think, you know, there's, I, I, like I said, I, I played around with a few other uh, uh, social media groups. Uh, Me We is one of them. Yeah. Uh, there's been a few others that I've also tried. And it's not like the other ones don't, uh, don't function. They function just fine. I was able to, I'm able to put stuff out there just fine. It's just that there's so many people. I mean, the public is on these other, on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. They're using them by the millions, you know, hundreds of millions. And so you can't ignore them if you want to grow your club. 
Yeah. You just have, you just kind of have to go by the rules um, and, and, and in order to not get shut down. Yeah. And it's a, I think personally, I can kind of view it as a balancing act, you know, because there, there are absolutely things that I disagree with, but then, you know, like you said, on the other hand, like, well, if I'm going to spend time doing this, I need to make sure that I, that the time is well spent, you know, and getting more people involved in muzzleloading. That's, you got to be where the people are at. Yeah, absolutely. What kind of tips then would you have for, for other clubs out there looking to promote their activities, whether that be online or, or in person or, or with traditional media? Well, I, I would say one of the, the big items is, um, you know, you, you, you'd want to have a website to, to begin with. Uh, to promote your club, um, just because you might lose the others others at any point in time. Um, but f- Facebook page and Facebook groups, they're both different from each other. And, you know, I use, uh, you know, a Facebook page is you think of it as a website page. It's where you can go and you can promote your own club and you can say what you want to say about your club and nobody really else can add anything to it. Um, they can comment on things, but they can't add any post to your Facebook page, um, unless you know you have your you have a group of administrators that can do that, but nobody else can. Um, Facebook groups allows the members that are there to communicate with each other and to share more posts and, and talk more. So you know they both have their their place. What I would also recommend is creating um, ca- Facebook event cal- uh, events using the calendar mm. and. I find a lot of places, a lot of Facebook groups that I go to where they're, 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 they have events, they'll, they'll do it on paper or they'll do a picture of their, their flyer and they'll say, hey, we're having this event and here's the flyer. Uh, and and if, if I'm going to be attending it, what I, what I end up doing is I create a, an event, take the picture of their flyer, put it in, into the event. It looks like it's a Gemmer event. It's not, not a Gemmer event. It may be somebody else's event, but there isn't an event created um, for it yet. Mm. And, and so I do that quite a bit. And then I share that event with people, because if you're real familiar with Facebook, you can take those events and you can download them to your phone and you can get all the information right on your calendar on your phone, which is really nice. Um, so I like events when it comes to all of the different matches and stuff that we have. I, I, I basically create events for um, all of that stuff for our members. I think that's a, a great point. The flyers are good for for trying to get the word out, but Facebook for those events will then go through and remind people about them. So if somebody says that they're interested in that event on Facebook, Facebook's going to remind them periodically before that event. Um, and that's something that you can't get by just posting the flyer. So by by making one of the event listings like Bob's talking about here, you kind of get a little bit of free advertising out of that. Now, Facebook's going to ask you to pay money to promote things more, but you get a little bit at the free level, right? Yep. Yeah, you can you can take an event and you can share it into groups. Um, and if you create a group that has 3,000 people in it, you can share that event right into the group and 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 share it to everybody so they all can see it. So I kind of try to promote, I don't really, I haven't done much pain of anything to promote my events, not for muzzle loading events. I've, if we were having like a, maybe a, a special show, um, for instance, like the Hawking Classic or something, mm-hmm. like a big event like that, you could 
promote it by paying a fee and, and that would push it out to people maybe the the general public but i'm i'm trying to focus my other events mainly to the muzzleloading community so i would you know put it into groups and uh, there's a lot of people a lot of things on both facebook and um on websites that promote events for muzzleloading and and i usually make sure that my events are listed there kind of targeting the audience there yes yes so you know the NMLRA has a has a group. There's a a, a few other. I think one's called Talking Bear. Yeah, is another one. Yep. And then there's there's another big group that's called something just like traditional muzzleloading events and um and something that's like events. It's a whole bunch of cl- oh, clubs and events. Yes. And yeah. I, I I post in there uh, stuff about with my events so that people can find it. That's one of my favorite groups because you can see really what's going on all around the country. It's just kind of a hub for, for muzzleloading and, and related to muzzleloading events out there. It's, it's a really great, great browse if you're looking at planning out your year for sure. Yeah, definitely. So you kind of teased it there a little bit, but recently you've been active in organizing an event called the Hawken Classic. Can you tell us a little bit about this event? Sure. Um, basically, it's a 200-year anniversary um, a celebration of the JNS Hawken rifle uh, that uh, Jake and Sam Hawken developed at the Hawken shop in St. Louis. Um, and they th- basically started that at about 1825. So we're coming up on that 200 year anniversary. And Muzzle Blast has been promoting the Hawken Classic since uh, late 2019 as something that would be, you know, would be coming. And then COVID. Uh, took out uh, the first year, which was 2021, that we didn't have it. Um, but then in 2022 and 2023, we held the first two Hawking Classics uh, at the historic Daniel Boone home in Defiance, Missouri. Mm. And so basically it was a, it's, it's, I wouldn't want to call it a rendezvous because it's, it's, that's just a part of it. Um, but we do have rendezvous camps um, we we have shooting. We have a range, and we did shooting there. Um, the second year, we actually we were going to add competition uh, as a rendezvous match, but it got rained out, so uh, that didn't yeah. even happen. That didn't even happen on that that uh, second event. Um, we have a lot of demonstrations, people doing stuff like um, horn making. We had somebody doing uh, blacksmithing. Things like that. Yeah. Um, seminars, educational seminars, a lot of guest speakers talking about the history of the Hawk and Rifle as well as Mountain Men and the fur trade period. Um, it was it's, it's it was a really very cool event. And uh, in addition, we had a lot of original rifles and contemporary rem- rem- remakes of those rifles on display that were uh, that was quite spectacular to see and uh, many people traveled from all over the country uh, to come in and, and, and see those those guns during our event. So it was a little bit of a, kind of a an all-around muzzleloading event, it sounds like. It sounds like you had the kind of hands-on activities and education, and you had, you know, some of the observable crafts and education. You had the these displays and, and recreations, as well as kind of the sit-down seminars. I know that you've published some of those on YouTube as well, haven't you? Yes, um, I sure did. I, during the um, event, I tried to videotape the, um, the seminars that we held. Um, I, I wish I would have 
had mics, uh, clip the clip on mics for everybody. I, I didn't, uh, hadn't really done too much of that before. So, um, the audio isn't the greatest, but, um, you know, I, I think you can, if you pay attention, I think you can hear the, the, the presentations. And so I did record uh, most of them and I have them uh, listed on YouTube for people. That's great. And, and much more of the event coverage can be seen, uh, you know, through the, the Gamer Club as, as well as some of the other media that you put out there. So if people are interested, they can catch a little bit about the past events here and, and learn about it. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Um, you can, if you if you're in YouTube and you search for Hawking Classic or Gamer Muzzleloading uh, Gun Club, you'll 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 find our videos there. Um, same thing with with Facebook or um, even if you just Google it on our for our website, you'll find our club quite easily. We did uh, be, we did optimize our website quite a bit to where it does usually show up pretty quickly on most search engines. That's great, and. Uh... You know, for for listeners that are familiar with the uh, with for regular listeners, I should say of, of the program here, um, some of the seminars that I remember were uh, Bob Woodfill, who just recently published uh, a rather great book about uh, the Hawken rifles and their history, um, did a presentation, and then I believe um, the folks from the Hawken shop were there as well. Is that right? Yes, they sure were. And uh, we had. Art Russell and, and Greg Roberts uh, also presented and were there uh, with with their kits and their their equipment uh, as part of the displays during the Hawken Classic both years. Awesome. I, I just bring that up because the Hawken kits that are out there, uh, you know, on the on the more affordable line, uh, you know, are kind of Hawken in name and that comes up a lot. But the the Hawken shop kits themselves, I believe, are made from original parts uh, and are kind of right now as close as you can get in many respects. Um, they're a little bit pricier, but I always like giving them a little bit of a shout out because there's a lot of discussion, you know, and like you were talking about earlier, you know, one of your first traditional muzzleloaders was a, a Hawken kind <laughs> of rifle, um, but you, you've since moved on, of course, but it's kind of a, a big term for muzzleloading. Did you get a lot of attention and a lot of traction with that, with, with kind of the cultural naming of the Hawken, you know, everybody kind of knows what it is. Did that increase attention, do you think, for you in the event? Yeah, I, I do. I think so. Um, you know, this year in 2023, we had a real, um, we were very fortunate in that we had uh, people that had contacts within the Missouri uh, Congress and uh, they were able to get a bill passed naming the Hawken rifle as the official state rifle uh, for Missouri. So that had, they, you know, that had um, did not go through in 2012, but um, in 2023, we were able to get that to happen. So I think that, you know, hopefully the, the Hawken Classic contributed to the, the discussions about the Hawken rifle and how special it is. Uh, to the state of Missouri and to the Western movement. So I think that, uh, that it, that it did. That's wonderful. We've talked a little bit here about the first two years for the event here with the Hawking classic, but going into the third year here, uh, and this is really one of the main things that we wanted to talk about tonight, but going into the third year, the Hawking classic and, and the, all of its organizers have hit kind of what I call a cultural speed bump 
For those that are unfamiliar, could you walk us through a little bit about what's happened with the event? Yes, um, I sure will. Um, basically, at the end of this year's event, uh, we normally, after the first year, we we had a um, a meeting with the parks, uh, St. Charles County Parks Department to kind of discuss the event, discuss how things went. Um, first year, we didn't have you know, anything that was really brought up as a, as a problem. Um, the event did have its, its, you know, issues related to weather related to, we had some bathroom issues where we didn't have enough bathrooms and some stuff like that. Um, food was, food was an issue during the first year. We didn't have uh, some food trucks, um, show up to the event. So we didn't, you know, we didn't have the, the food supplies that we needed when it came to the second year, we were kind of trying to set up another meeting to kind of talk about how the event went. And I had heard during the event um, and was aware of a few um, hiccups that had occurred through through the event. And um, so I, you know, I kind of expected that we would be having conversations about those items. But instead of like that, we got a letter basically just saying that um, they knew we were going to be surprised, but we're going to, we no longer really want to have the event. It didn't feel like it was maybe worth their effort and, and time um, to hold the event. I, you know, I guess I think that maybe because the low turnout, um, I mean, we both years we had terrible weather, which really camp uh, dampened the number of people that attended. Yeah. Um, and, and I get, and I get that, but um, I don't really, I don't think that it was the weather that kind of caused the whole issue, but I, I didn't really get a, a good, you know, clear single thing that was the problem. They did kind of give us a general list of, of things that they felt, you know, Hey, we, we didn't do these certain things and we could have done better with them. Um, one of the things, you know, you know, as you mentioned, um, a cultural speed bump, it's kind of like, I, you know, the, the list of things they gave us, if you read the whole thing, sometimes people, people will look at it and say, you, you kind of get a certain feel for what's being said. What's the flavor of this letter? What is it kind of saying here? And there were a lot of little things um, that when you put them all together, it feels like that they were on a, um, a you know, a different place culturally with what, with what our event did. Um, and, and for example, certain things like they didn't, um, like having some people that walked around barefoot or that they, the blacksmith area, they took their shirts off while they were working and that was dangerous, um, that they should have had their shirts, their shirts on. And, you know, it was a hundred plus degrees outside and so yeah it's, it's august in missouri <laughs> yeah august in missouri so yeah a few people decided that they would you know risk it and take their shirts off in order not to probably pass out um and and while they're working on a fire and and other things you know we weren't perfect we did do you know a few of our people did some things that oh, i wish we could take back and not we wouldn't have done but i guess overall i don't think that anything was major that, that took place. There was nothing, nothing was damaged or broke that had to be replaced. Um, you know, it, everything was like, oh, you know, hey, we avoided a, an issue. This could have been a problem. It wasn't. Nobody 
stepped on anything and hurt themselves. There was nobody injured. I think it was very, you know, I was very happy that nobody had heat stroke or had to be taken to the hospital. Absolutely. Due to yeah. the intense weather. You know, we were very concerned about that. We made sure we had lots of water for people and um, we dealt with the weather situation. Um, the, the, one of the things that was brought up that was probably the most surprising to me was related to um, a couple of, of the, the history reenacting people basically dressed up as Native Americans. And I saw the, the, the two people that were, that were walking around and I didn't really think too much of it. Um, and, and they talked with some of the parks people and, you know, they never said anything to them that, Hey, they didn't think that that was appropriate, that they should be dressing up as native Americans, but they put it into the list saying that, you know, they didn't think that um, so white people should be dressing up and putting on, um, they, they they thought that they were using bronzing or something on their skin to change the color of their skin mm-hmm. to look like mm-hmm. a Native American. Um, so, you know, I really didn't have a whole whole lot of information about this. Um, I'm I'm also not a living history person yet. Um, in fact, for the Hawking Classic, I bought my first outfit uh, to oh. look. You know, to look and dress the part for yeah. the last year. That's right? wonderful. So it was the first time I've ever done that. Yeah. I love that you so got I, into that. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of, I, I guess I had like a Benjamin Franklin style hat. I wasn't quite um, of the time period for the Hawking Classic. Uh, and I got kind of teased about that a little bit. Uh-huh. But yeah, it was my first attempt, right? Yeah, so, you're getting there. <laughs> it's a, it's a huge learning curve, man. Once you start getting into that, man. I know I'm still, I've been... I think I've been seriously dressing for over 20 years now. Uh, and I'm still, I'm still not there yet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm hoping the next time around, I'm going to try to do a little bit more mountain man outfit. Um, I've gotten a couple more items for that. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll be dressed more time appropriate for the time. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, that it's, it's, this is difficult, you know, because you want to keep this event going. You know, you want to you want to work with people that want to work with you on this event. It sounds like, you know, in the way that that you are putting it, and I've read the letter and I I've I've followed this and this was one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this because this is the kind of thing that we're seeing all across the country and, and clubs are having to deal with and, and groups are having to deal with and events are having to deal with. But it sounds a little bit like to me, uh, like the, by, the way you've put it in the letter that it, they didn't really necessarily want to continue hosting it. Did you, would you say that you got a similar feel to that? Like they were, they were really looking for things to, to step away from this event yeah, yeah, I do. I, I, the the letter. I think it's interesting the way the letter is written. You know, they point out dates and times uh, when violations took place, and kind of like very legal, legalish, as if you know you're trying to get out of a contract and you need to give the details. It's very specific mm. about what the violations were, and the the only things that I wish I would have been able to have a conversation about was, you know, 
I want I I don't know when who some of the people are that did some of the things that they're claiming. So I can't even 100% address all of the issues because it doesn't sound like from their letter that they addressed the issue with the people and they just told me about it, but they didn't give me names and, and information enough that I can fully address it. Um, and in some cases, I think it's just a difference of opinion too with some of the items. Like, you know, I think if they would have... I don't know. I, I hope that if they would have actually talked specifically with the people that that dressed up as Native Americans, um, I I reached out to them. I know who they are and I talked to them and I had them um, tell me a little bit more about them, what you know, what they do and what you know, and all that, because I just I just don't know. Yeah. And so basically they had done a lot of research um, and spent lots of money working with um, tribes of, Na of Native Americans in developing their outfits, and they used the, the the paint and the things that they used were used that are authentic, and it's what people in those tribes used to, um, you know, to, to, as part of their dress. Yeah, the clothing and the and the outfit and and all of the details were were researched and basically went through an approval process with. Native Americans to approve their outfit as being authentic uh, Native Americans. And they are um, like, I guess where, where I feel like there's, there's a really a breakdown is that this event, and I don't think that any history, living history, people and or events, th this isn't, is not about um, racism. It's not about trying to, um, make fun of or cause problems or or whatever with people of other nation uh, other races this is about history and sharing living history which is very unique um acting and and living the part of somebody that lived 200 years or more years ago and if people don't do that who are of that race if for instance in missouri there aren't any Native Americans in our area that want to participate in those in that event that way because there just isn't very many of them here. Then, who else is going to do it? And you know, I had a couple of conversations with other people who are into who are much who have been doing this for years and years related to living history events, and I asked those questions to them, and basically, you know, they kind of said the same thing. They basically. <laughs> told me that's that's the reason why a lot of times at, at events that's why people who are caucasian will um dress as people of other nationalities because you're trying to portray a time period and in that time period there were people from a lot of different nationalities here and so to basically shut down or you know it's this the, the cancel cancel culture of we're not going to do things that are uh, that might offend people you know i don't think anybody should do things that are offensive to people but i also think people should be thick-skinned and not allow themselves to be offended um because hey stones may break my bones words will not that will never hurt me that type of saying yeah yeah we need a lot more of that in our society and nobody that's doing this living history stuff that i have seen is doing it in a manner that is uh, trying to offend 
anyone. You know, and if they were, if they were, then they definitely should be should be shut down. They should not be allowed to do that. But I don't, I don't believe that's what we're talking about. From what I am gathering here about this is, you know, there are these, you know, at at times difficult concepts or or ideas and things that people might not want to discuss or might not be want to be involved in. But I think I really think at the core, what what I'm getting out of this is there's just a a lack of communication and discussion about a lot of this, and I think that's what frustrates me uh, about this. And you know, I I couldn't make it to the Hawking Classic. Um, just it's hard to get out with a with a young kid right now and get that far from from home and and work and things, but repeatedly. It doesn't really matter what state so far um, that I've talked to event organizers or people involved with in events is we're getting locked up, it seems, in a just a lack of communication about this stuff. There's nothing that I personally saw in in the reasons that the venue gave you guys that couldn't be discussed. You know, there there are things that, yeah, I'm sure I'm not saying that there's nothing out there that can't be discussed. I'm sure somebody could come up with something. But, man, for for being the second year of an event, there's going to be those growing pains. There's going to be those things that people aren't prepared for, that people just couldn't foresee happening. You know, I mean, in the event organizing space, really, you don't consider an event to be you know, at full bore until it's five years old. And, you know, you can't really expect attendance. You can't anticipate, like you said, food, restrooms. Those are all things that events everywhere, you know, battle because it's, it's just stuff that comes up, you know, it doesn't see nothing. None of this really seems like it's so monumental that a discussion couldn't happen about it. I think that's, it's just, incredibly frustrating. I don't, Yeah, that's how, that's my personal take on it. That's just hearing you talk about it and, and following the things that have been happening with it. That's, that's what I'm hearing about this. And it, it, it kind of bums me out that there, there couldn't be a discussion um, to at least wrap things up, I guess, you know, there couldn't just be a, a sit down and say, you know, we have to agree to disagree and go our separate ways here. It was just kind of a boom, boom, boom. Here's our, here's our letter in writing that satisfies our lawyer's request. And, you know, not, not saying that it was a lawyer's request in case a lawyer is listening, not implying that, but you know, just that feeling that you get out of it. Um, It doesn't feel very personal and it it feels just kind of cold. And I, I hate that we're, kind of in that position but you guys are not the only events going through that and and that's why again i appreciate you talking about this stuff and being so candid about it because there are other events there are other clubs and there are other groups of people going through this in other states and we're kind of in a a pattern here where this is to my knowledge one of the first times as a community that we're facing this 
you know, th- these cultural differences um, where discussions can't even happen uh, or can't happen or don't happen, I should say, uh, yeah. about this to, to educate going both ways. You know, if a venue needs something, uh, you know, you guys, I'm sure, would be more than willing to hear it and, and try and do your best to accommodate that and vice versa. Man, it's just... yeah. It's so the, it's so complicated. It is, and and one of the things that I feel like um, as we move forward, we're we're talking to a variety of other places, and the people that we're talking to, I as we go into that conversation, as we get serious about it, and I've already started this with a couple of people, I share the the the, the exact issues that happened during the first two years. Um, I share the the complaints that we got with them about the event. And I let them know that we, you know, with the things that we failed at or that our people that somebody did the wrong thing, we are prepared to, you know, to, to fix that type of stuff. We did, you know, this was not something that was unfixable. It should have, we could have discussed it and it could have been resolved. Um, And we, you know, don't really understand why it was completely shut down, but, um, you know, we want to make sure that they, for instance, if one of the things that was disappointing to me about the, the, the first venue that we had was that they, so for instance, in Missouri, you can, you can sell muzzle loaders um, and it, because it's an antique firearm. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in some states, they consider it to be um, a, a regular firearm. Yes. So, in Missouri, there's no law about selling a muzzleloader. There's no nothing where you have to go through a licensed firearm dealer. Right, an um, FFL. FFL. But we could have. But the 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 St. Charles County Parks did did not want us to sell muzzleloaders on their property. Mm. And so that was something. It was kind of like an early sign of of a difference of opinion about you know what it is we deal with there. I, I don't know what the reasonings are for that, but it's their property. They had the right to say it. We, right. we honored their, um, their desires. We told people what the rule was. I had a lot of feedback that many people did not attend because they were unable to bring their firearms to sell. Hmm. So that, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when you're trying to plan a certain type of event, you want to attract as many people as possible. You have to make sure that the venue itself is going to be suitable for what you're trying to do there. Right. So what, what other steps are you taking? You're, you are, you're looking to continue the event without your previous venue. Um, what else are you looking for in a new venue? Well, um, there's, we're, we, I, I put together a list of things that were, that we need for the Hawking classic. And as we, as we go through and talk to people and meet plate places, part of it has to do with location. You know, we're a lot, I've had a lot of people recommend places and offer up places that were fairly far away. Um, many of some of them are completely out of state and, and other, and other parts of the country. Hmm. You know, Cause I think a lot of people would love to take over doing this event just in another, maybe in the mountains, you know, like go to where the mountain men went versus right. where they started. Mm-hmm. And, and there's logic to that. But um, our club is is the ones that did the volunteer work for the event. You know, we had 40 or 50 volunteers that were members of our club that spent the whole weekend working, running everything for the event. 
and and they need to be close. You know, a lot of those people want to be able to go home at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. They don't want to tack on a flight in a hotel room, you know, for a volunteer event. You know, a lot of people can't afford that. Yeah, exactly. So we're, we're looking at places, you know, ideally it would be someplace close to St. Louis. Um, we want to have a place for people to uh, live in history, uh, people to have their rendezvous camps. Mm-hmm. Um do a place to do seminars. Uh, we need to have like an air conditioned uh, building in order to display the original Hawken rifles and Missouri State rifles because they're basically museum quality type guns. Yeah, yeah. you don't want have, them out in the heat and the humidity. Yep, yep. They can't they can't get tarnished and all that stuff. Um, the people who are visiting come from out of state, so places that kind of close to hotels and restaurants. Um, we would love to be able to shoot uh, and have a shooting range. You know, I think in general, there's certain things that we've said, you know, Hey, if we, we have to, we might have to make some, uh, you know, concessions and not be able to do everything that we want to do. And if if we can't find a place that where we can shoot, but it's close to St. Louis and, you know, the closer you are to the city, the less likely you're going to be able to shoot a, a, a gun at a target. Just because right. of the population around you. Yeah. So we've we've talked to a few places and we've got a few ideas. Um, we're we're kind of trying to weigh all the options and and make a decision. Hopefully, we'll have a decision um, made. You know, maybe by the end of the year. Wonderful. I like to try to inspire action and and involvement out of people. What can what can muzzleloading enthusiasts do to help? Well, I think. In general, when it comes to this this topic of you know and the problem that we have with people, um, you know maybe not understanding living history, or um, you know, I think that that you know this this idea that um, that that we have to cancel or we we can't be. Um, we can't dress up as other people um, of other nations and stuff. I think that we need to, there needs to be conversations about that. Um, I would love to have more conversations because I feel like there's so much that I would like to learn about it Mm -hmm. and that I don't understand or know myself. I've only really had the last couple of weeks to think about it and to talk about it. And it would be nice to have, conversations uh, with Native Americans that would be interested in this topic and who are participants in these types of events to find out their stand on this and find out, you know, because a lot of times, I mean, the people that we offended were not Native Americans with our event. There was nobody there that was. They were the people that ran the place that were afraid that they would offend somebody. So they they canceled it. You know what, I, you know, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, I'm following you. Yeah. Trying to, you know, trying to figure out what is the what is the answers to these questions and what is it that we want to do you know i don't think anybody wants to um uh you know do anything disrespectful to other people we're trying to i think in general um do something that teaches history and it it educates the public about america's history and so i really like the idea of being open to a lot more conversations and discussions about it um, I would I would love to see 
you know, articles written about it that would be published in like Muzzle Blast or Muzzle Loader magazine that, that goes into the topic of living history and the culture war, you know, that we have. And is, is this part of it? I mean, is this, is this what, you know, where we're at, where we're talking about history events where historians are, are how they dress and how they talk. And I, I know there's a lot of various rules and I, from talking to the other people about it, depending upon where you go, there's all kinds of rules related to what people can and can't do when it comes to a living history event and, and acting a, a, as another person from another race. And I think it's something that should be discussed more. I think yeah, so we, I, I agree with that, you know, is that we need more discussions. We, we need more conversations about this. Something I love about the Muslim and living history community, uh, especially since everybody's in, in a manner of ways has adopted the Internet as a means to connect and communicate. Is there's so many conversations out there happening all the time. I mean, I can I, I tell people all the time there are groups and forums out there where I can go and learn about a specific county's muzzleloaders from a specific decade because there are people that are interested in studying those that level of specificity. And I think that's wonderful. And, and the discussions on the living history side of things are probably even farther along than that of, of trying to understand the past how to learn from it and how that relates to, to where we live and, and how we live today. And I think, I don't think that you can argue personally with uh, enjoying and understanding and, or trying to understand history more. And I think I, I really like what you had to say there about, you know, just wanting to have more conversations about this stuff. I, I feel like the more we, we hole off and, and build walls around topics and each other really uh, on who we are or aren't willing to talk to here uh, it makes things difficult and it it's it especially makes things difficult for muzzleloading and living history uh, if we want to see it continue to grow because nobody is arguing that over the past 50 years that it, it has slimmed down you know i think clubs and events all over the country have seen that and if we want to combat that I think we have to have more conversations like you've been talking about. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And that's a, and I like that too, Bob, because that's a, that's a simple action item. You know, that's, that's not like, you know, build a castle, <laughs> you know, it's something manageable that, that everybody can do and, and kind of think about as they, as they listen to the episode. So I, I really appreciate the manageability of that call to action. Well, good. Well, thank you very much for allowing me to uh, to voice my my thoughts on it. Absolutely, absolutely, Bob. Like I said, you know, and I I want to reiterate that you aren't alone as a, as an event organizer and participant here. Um, I think that a lot of us, a lot of the community, as connected as we are, sometimes in these instances, it's easy to feel alone. I mean, this is a blow to your club. Yeah and to a young event. But I think that you guys are on the right path, um, you know, to continue it and, and find another avenue um, to keep sharing history 
especially in your area. And I really appreciate that you are, and I'm not trying to butter you up here, but I, I appreciate that you're wanting to stick to the Missouri area because it's important to represent that area and its history. Uh, you know, the Hawk and Shop is a major part of that, but there's so much around it as well, especially in the time period here that represents that history. And I think Hawken kind of serves as the, the flag that a lot of people can recognize. And it's kind of the introduction for a lot of people into their local history. And so I, I commend you for your efforts on preserving that and sharing it. Well, thank you. I, pre- I appreciate that. And I think that it, it's, um, it's really done a lot to, uh, to get people interested. I mean, we know the for a lot of us, uh, the Hawken Hawken rifle or a Hawken style rifle, maybe a pl- maybe it was a plains rifle, was our first muzzleloader, mm-hmm. um, and and so it's kind of a, you know, it's a it's a, a neat part of the history, and I can't tell you how much I've learned, but it's been a tremendous amount that I've learned just in participating in this event, um, and being part of it. It kind of like really expanded my knowledge about St. Louis, about the history what was going on back then. It's, I mean, it's like, it's incredible. I, I, it's put my level of wanting to know more history completely to another level. Wonderful. I love to hear that. To round out a little bit of our, of our conversation here, what tips would you give to someone wanting to start a muzzleloading or living history event in their area? Well, one thing I would say is they, it helps if you, um, are working with a club, you know, it, it, it's, I, I would have made, I, I think this would be very difficult to win completely by yourself. Um, I think having people that you can work with that can volunteer, um, a local club. Um, if you, if you don't have a club in your area and you're like trying to, you'd like to start a club and, and then that's another, that's kind of a little different, you know, thing, but it would be, what you can do is reach out to people like myself who, um, are very active and in, in, in the club, and then they can, you know, be happy to share uh, a lot of good information about how to how to promote your club, how to maybe there's documentation that you might want, things related to the you know bylaws, how do you know what are what kind of membership dues do you collect from members, you know, to fund your club? There's like all types of topics that people like myself would be more than happy to share and talk about. With with somebody who's wanting to start a new club, if you're if you're interested in doing that, or if you're have, trying to have an event, it's always good to, you know, go to um, some of the bigger organizations and, um, and and work through them to try to help promote your event. Um, talk to I've been I've been doing a lot of outreach to various vendors and and people that um, you know to help like people like Shoots and Powder. And um, that you know, have donated powder to the club to the event. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to find and do more of that as we get, you know, um, as as the event continues in, in future years. But it's it's tough. It's 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 a tough thing with when you're if you're if you're trying to do it on your own. I, I think you really do need more more than one person to put together a really big event. Absolutely. One thing that I didn't um, get written down here, Bob, and it's okay if we if you don't have anything about this, but I I wanted to ask is some events are finding difficulty on the insurance front. Have you guys had any issue with, with finding insurance or, or getting insurance for, for the event? Because that's a, that's a big hurdle for a lot of, of upstart events out there. Well, for the the Hawken classic, 
Um, both years, the uh, first two years, the vet has been sponsored by the NMLRA. Mm -hmm. And so the NMLRA provided uh, the insurance needs that the county had uh, for holding the event. Okay. Gotcha. Um, we, yeah, we as a club, we're, you know, a charter club of the NMLRA. So our club has insurance and I'm sure that we could, um, you know, buy a, a additional insurance that we would need for holding an event, but I haven't gotten to that point or need, we haven't had a need to do that yet. Right. No, I, I appreciate you sharing that. And I, I don't mean to, to pry into the, the functions of the event, but the, it's it's weird to say, but on a lot of this, on the, a lot of these events and, and the issues that event organizers have is purely on the insurance front of, of what an event can or cannot allow. Sometimes comes down to the insurance that they can afford and what the insurance companies are allowing. Um, and, and in some states and some regions, it comes down to the insurance companies in a way are policing what can and can't happen, which is really bizarre, but it's something that we're continuing to see more and more. So I'm happy that you guys are, aren't facing any difficulty on that front. Um, and, and maybe it gives some other folks out there some ideas if they are facing similar difficulties. So thank you again for taking that kind of off the handle question. <laughs> sure. No. And, and, you know, we, as a club, um, we appreciate the fact that uh, the NMLRA has supported, you know, supported our event um, and and provided the insurance for that. Um, I think there's a lot of of good aspects. It comes from being a part of a, a large organization and being able to, you know, use their um, insurance coverages and stuff as part of, you know, when you're a smaller group trying to have an event. Absolutely. Well, I, I, as a, as a lifelong member so far for, of the association, I, I appreciate the little shout out. <laughs> it's always, it's always fun to go hang out and shoot at friendship. Definitely. To uh, really the last question I have for you here, where can people find you, the Gamer Club and the Hawking Classic online to learn more about some of the stuff that we've been talking about? Well, the, the Gamer uh, website is uh, GamerMuzzleLoadingClub.com. Uh, that's that's the probably the easiest place uh, to to find us. Um, through there, you know, you can put in um, a request for con to contact us. I'm, I'm listed under there as one of the contacts, as well as the other board members. And uh, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, as we mentioned, you just do a search for Gimmer Muzzle Loading uh, Gun Club or Robert Vote. Um, you'll find me, and um, you know, shoot me a message. Those are those are great ways to uh, reach out to me and, and and contact me. And how about the Hawk and Classic? The the Hawk and Classic. We have uh, both a Facebook page um, on our our Gimmer Muzzleloading Gun Club website. There is a link at the top for the Hawk and Classic. Um, if you go to that, we'll have updated information there. You know, especially as we as we determine the new location for the third year, we'll be put posting it there. We'll be posting it onto the Hawking Classic uh, Facebook and Instagram pages. Um, so yeah, we'll, we're, we do have uh, Facebook groups out there uh, for the Hawking Classic, and you know, I encourage people to follow it. Um, you know, and and you'll 
you'll get the latest updates. Fantastic. I'll include links to everything that Bob has listed in the show notes for this episode. So uh, you can find links and, and bookmark them. Uh, to look at later. I always have to say this. If you are listening to the episode while you're driving, do not try to type this stuff into your phone. <laughs> Make sure you wait until you get stopped to, to start learning more about this. Uh, and as Bob mentioned here, all of the information uh, kind of chronicling the cultural speed bump that the Hawking Classic has been going through has been published online. So you can uh, if you're interested in, in learning a little bit more about it or seeing what's happened for yourself um, and, and maybe how it could relate to an event that you are involved in, uh, you can check all that stuff out and, and really just read through it yourself um, and, and kind of form your own opinion on it. You know, if you agree or disagree, uh, there's an option out there for you to, to read it and see what's going on. Um, and I hope that similar things are not happening to, to other events, but Sadly, I know they are. <laughs> yeah, and if you if you do decide you read through the uh, the the events and the the comments that were made, I tried to provide feedback on the comments, um, but I, I held back on certain aspects of the feedback, uh, mainly due to to protect the people who were involved. But uh, if you contact me individually, I can I can probably share and help answer questions or concerns that you know anyone might feel or have uh, related to the event. I can probably clear up some some questions you might have. Fantastic. Thank you for including that, Bob. Thank you very much for uh, for talking to me today about all this. Yeah, happy to, Bob. I'm, uh, this is the kind of thing that I think everybody needs to be aware of and, and learn a little bit more about, you know, just in case it starts happening in their area. You know, I, I hope that, and it really, I've said it for a long time, that the muzzleloading clubs are, are really the backbone of the sport. They've, they've, they're the ones that have preserved it uh, really for the last hundred years or just a little bit over a hundred years, probably. Um, you know, and I, I want to make sure that we see that continue. And uh, I hope that this kind of, this kind of stuff doesn't spread. And, and if it does, I hope that uh, we can be agile enough to, to maneuver around it and, and keep all this going. So thank you, Bob, for, for taking time out of your evening to talk with me. I, I truly appreciate it. Well, you're quite welcome, Ethan. I appreciate it as well. Thank you. I'm happy to report that since recording, Bob and his team have found a new location for the Hawken Classic event. The official dates for 2024 are May 17th, 18th, and 19th. The new location is the Lewis and Clark Boathouse and Museum, 1050 South Riverside Drive, St. Charles, Missouri. The zip code is 63301. Again, I'd like to congratulate Bob and his team for going through this process and keeping this event alive. I think it's fantastic. I'm really excited to hopefully see a much larger turnout at a better location here in 2024. I'd like to thank Bob again for taking time out of his evening to chat with me about this. I know it's taken up a lot of his time and I'm sure it's been stressful. Um, so really, Bob, I appreciate you sharing what you've gone through and I hope that it aids other muzzleloading enthusiasts around the country here as we're seeing similar things pop up with other events and other clubs and other parts of the country. If you neglected to take notes or want to learn more, as always, the show notes accompanying this episode have links and the discussion topics in them. And then we'll have a full article at ilovemuzzleloading.com expanding on some of the information. And I've been able to include a transcript 
of the conversation for the past few episodes. So I'm going to try to continue doing that. So if you want to search through the conversation in text form, you should be able to do that if there's a transcript with the blog post at ilovemuzzleloading.com. Um, it's something I've been trying to do. Sometimes the muzzleloading terminology trips up the transcription software, so please forgive me if there's an error here and there, um, but I hope that in general the transcription um, helps you take some notes or, or reference information at a later date. By the time you're listening to this, we are full bore into autumn here in the United States for the year of 2023. I know I've continued to talk about it, but we have a lot of great stuff in the pipeline here at I Love Muzzleloading. Uh, here recently, we've produced a, t a ton of great videos, I think, um, really s some stuff that I'm really excited about and really proud to get out there. Heading into winter here, we've sighted in a new flintlock muzzleloader for the Indiana whitetail deer season. And I'll be taking that out in through my family woods here. I'm not sure I'll be successful, uh, but I'm, I'm hoping to at least have a little fun in the woods with my muzzleloader and my traditional accoutrements. We're also heading back out to the Rock Island Auction Company to take a look at some original antique muzzleloaders as they pass through the auction house. And then to wrap up the year, we're getting back into the shop. We're working on several muzzleloading kits here. Um, so if you're interested in build series, this winter is going to be jam-packed with build series uh, as we've got three kits to knock out here. So I'm, I typically only build one. Uh, we've got three this year. I'm trying to get them done by turkey season in the spring. So we'll see how that goes. I'm not going to promise anything, but I, I'm not going to promise anything really, but videos about, uh, about building some neat muzzleloader kits. I hope you stop by and check them out. Um, as always, with any of the stuff that we produce here at I Love Muzzleloading, uh, I really encourage and, and really want to hear your feedback about it. If you liked something and didn't like it, if you agree or disagree, or if you know how to do it better, please let me know. Um, it not only helps me continue through my muzzleloading journey, but then I can share what you've shared with me, the knowledge that you're passing on to other muzzleloading enthusiasts out there um, and create really an educational foundation here, which is what I Love Muzzleloading is all about. really just want to educate, share, and promote muzzleloading. Um, and by you sharing that with me, it, it helps out. I'm able to pass that along and give people other ideas on how to do something. You see that in the kit series all the time. I tell people how I do something. And then I mention two or three other ways that other folks out there are doing it. Um, I always joke that if you ask 10 muzzleloading enthusiasts, how they do something, you're going to get 12 different answers because it's so varied. It's so vast and something I really love about it. And it's something that I think newcomers can grow to appreciate that there's not one perfect way to do any of this. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much, Bob. We've got some more episodes in the queue here, trying to keep the podcast going here through the end of the year. I hope you enjoy the great episodes that we have coming up. I think you will. Once again, I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time.